0: Sangram here. I'm the host of the Flip Maffler podcast. And as always, every Tuesday and sometimes even on Thursday, we actually have somebody come and do a takeover, which honestly gives me more time to do what I need to do in my life, but it also creates great content on the podcast. So this time, a good friend of mine, really, really a good friend of mine, Ted Wynn, he has a passion for the heroes in healthcare business. And we all know how the healthcare business has been impacted over the last years. And he he started a podcast right in the middle of it. So Ted, tell us what this podcast series is all about That and who do you interview in that?
1: Sure. Well, thanks, Andrew. First, and second, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, our tagline is dedicated to highlighting bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry who are focusing on transforming lives in their communities. And we just thought with the COVID, fact, COVID um pandemic that we're all living through and still continuing to go through, that these people and their stories just wasn't, wasn't being told or needed to be highlighted more. And so we just took it on as a, a bit of a passion project and said, let's start talking about these people and what they're doing. And uh, as a result, it's taken off. We have, uh, we are just finished episode 10. Ah, congrats. Uh, thanks and we have uh last numbers I checked were here about 1700 downloads
0: already. That is awesome. So the podcast is called Heroes of Healthcare. Yep. Heroes and Healthcare. uh yeah, and and uh we're going to have links to your podcast here so if people want to continue listening to it after even after the series is done, they can go check it out. We'll obviously write a blog and all those things, share some of the people you're interviewing so we get a taste of it.
1: Yeah. So yeah, and they can they can listen on the Heroes of Healthcare Podcast.com website. So we have a whole website with the episodes posted there, Spotify, Apple, all the regular places as well. But yeah, we've been really fortunate. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knapp, he was the chief marketing, uh, excuse me, chief medical officer for Mount Sinai in New York City, who gave us a whole impact of how New York City responded to the pandemic and and the stress on the people. We had the chief Medical Officer for Navant, Massive Healthcare System in the North Carolina and the Southeastern Market, talking all about vaccine safety of mRNA and the vaccine that's been coming out. And then we like to mix it up a little bit. We had an old-time friend of mine, Jack Curry, who is the voice of the New York Yankees, come on and talk all about baseball and how baseball was dealing with the COVID pandemic, but also how baseball was giving us some normalcy in our lives. Yeah because one of the things we also want to focus on is not just the physicality of of the of the healthcare system but also mental health. So we've also had um, the chief wellness officer from another major healthcare system talking about physician burnout, dealing with all the different clinicians and how are they dealing with the medical stress that they're under under these uncertain times. So it's been very exciting and it's been uh, we've had such a cross section of people. I think the listeners are going to find
0: something in uh great out of each one of them awesome man ted so so everybody listening you might be listening to the first episode you might be listening to the 10th takeover episode of this series so just make sure you you look back and see if you have missed anything but each one of them uh something that i feel ted you being so passionate about it is going to bring life to a lot of people as they hear it so ted again thanks for doing this and everybody enjoy the show
2: In today's episode, I'm very excited that we're going to be able to touch upon a topic that we have not been able to hit in any sort of depth on the podcast, which is the racial tensions that are going on in this country while we're in the middle of a pandemic. And how does that affect the treatment of service, the treatment of care, the quality of care, the quality of care in marginalized areas? So it's my absolute pleasure today to be joined by Richard Johnson. Rashard Johnson is the president of Advocate Trinity and South Suburban Hospitals in the South Chicagoland region. Advocate Trinity is part of the Advocate Aurora Health Systems. Prior to Advocate, Rashad was in the Houston, Texas area where he served for three years as vice president and chief operating officer at CHI St. Luke's Health. Prior to CHI, Johnson served five years as the assistant vice president of support services for UT Southwestern University Hospital and clinics in Dallas. Johnson earned his master's degree in healthcare administration from the University of Central Florida, where I also understand he was a heck of a football player. He's a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives and the National Association of Health Service Executives. Currently serves on several boards, including the Greater Houston March of Dimes, the Woodlands Family YMCA, and the Chamber of Commerce. As we get ready to have this quite provocative episode, it is absolutely my pleasure to welcome Rashard Johnson.
3: Thanks, Ted. I appreciate you having me. It's excited to be here. Looking forward to it, my friend. Yeah, let's
2: jump into it. Let's have some fun. So if you can, I always like to start off with having the audience hear a little bit about you, a little bit of your background, where you hailed from, where you grew up, and what's gotten you into healthcare and why you're so passionate about healthcare.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Love it. Love it. I am um, originally born and raised in, in Miami, Florida in Liberty City, Miami, to be exact, product of a single parent household. My mother's a, a teacher, just raised my brother and I there. And, I, and that that neighborhood really sh- helped shape me and form me. And to be honest with, with you, created, created the man I am today and the executive I am and husband, et cetera, uh, just that background. And just give, giving me a, a lot of insight on what it is to serve underserved communities and those disenfranchised having come from that background. Being here in, in the south side of Chicago gives me a chance to hit the ground running and really relate with some of the challenges that we have. Played football at University of Central Florida, go night, shameless, uh, shameless. plug away, plug away, play man. <laughs> 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 I played uh, was blessed enough to play cornerback there and didn't go on to the NFL to my dream. I had some injuries along the way that derailed me. But stayed and did a master's degree at, at Central Florida and, and had an opportunity to do a uh, an administrative residency up under the CEO of the Miami VA Health System. And and then also a fellowship program up under the CEO at Jackson Health System in, in Miami. And that just springboarded my career to uh, to where I am now. So those those were the foundational roots for me.
2: That's great. So, tell us a little bit about. I, th- I know you spent some time in Texas, and it's been clear that throughout your career, as I mentioned a little earlier, that you definitely have a heart for giving back, and you have a heart for those communities. So, what brought you to your? What brought you to the current facility that you're managing now?
3: Yeah, there are a multitude of things that that brought me here. I was at the time a market chief operating officer with CHI St. Luke's. Health down in the Woodlands area, if, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with Texas, about thirty thirty two miles north of of Houston. Really loved it. Loved the organization. Loved my role, and received a call from Advocate Aurora Health as they were expanding and and they were growing, and they had recently merged. Advocate did with Aurora. Advocate was in Illinois, Legacy, and then Aurora Legacy is, it was in Wisconsin. They merged and reached out because you know they felt as though I had what it takes to join the. Advocate Aurora family. Thank God they were right. And, you know, it was a, a president opportunity. So it was that next step up for me in, in a dream, a dream of mine I had already, already set my eyes on. I wanted to become a president and CEO by the age of 35, which is, <laughs> a lot of people laughed at me when I was 24 and I told them that. But Advocate gave me that opportunity, believe in me at a very young age, to take the role. And, you know, when I came here and, and I had a chance to drive through the South Side of Chicago at Advocate Trinity and then in the South Suburbs at Advocate South Suburban Hospital, the two hospitals that I am so blessed and fortunate to oversee, it was a no-brainer. It was like looking in the mirror. You know, I, it, I could see my reflection. I, I could see my community. I can understand the, the struggles and some of the pain and, and some of the lack of access from a healthcare standpoint, or uh, some systemic things that are structurally set up as obstacles for us achieving a better health. I, all of that resonated well with me, and and for me, it was a, a Godsend blessing to have that opportunity to be at a at a president level, which is a dream job of mine, and to do it in, in a community that reflected you know, who I, I truly am and my upbringing. I just saw that as a divine intervention, to be honest with you. So that's what brought me here.
2: That's great. See, so, yeah, because I, I know a little bit about the Woodlands area and know a little bit about the South side of Chicago and those two areas are, are a little different.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if you talk to people that, that know me, they'll tell you I'm a little different <laughs> as well. I can, I can go from the boardroom to the street corner and, and relate with people. So yeah, but, no, and
2: I, I love that. But I mean, but how how critical, right? How important is that in, the, in your role? Right. It's very right. Yeah. Because because leaders in the hospitals within communities like you're in, really, you're you are or become my guess would be and you tell me if I'm wrong, but you in a sense, you become a bit of a community
3: leader. Correct. Correct. And especially in this role, you're spot on, Ted, in this role, the president role. Which was different for me, because keep in mind, this is my first president role, right? I, I've always been an operator. With your heads down, you're in, in the building, you're making it happen. You're executing on all those initiatives that your boss gives. You know, the president dreams up with the team, right? You have to make it, you have to execute. Go make it happen. You have to make it happen. And in this role is definitely a lot more external facing. The fact that you and I are having this much needed conversation is a, is a testament to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's external facing, and and you're dealing a lot with legislators. You're dealing a lot with community leaders, leaders of faith, and if you know anything about Chicago politics, then you know why they call it the Windy City. So it's very robust, <laughs> and so I enjoy every bit of it. But it's it's all the challenging, and it's and it's great. But you're right; it's a distinct difference between the woodlands, which is a, an affluent, extremely affluent suburb. To where I am on on the south side of Chicago and even even the south suburbs, which does pretty well as as well the south suburbs, but not the same as the woodlands. But I'll last thing I'll share about this Ted is that there are things that you can learn at all levels and in all situations that help shape you, and you can apply them if if you're willing to be flexible and willing to listen. And some of those things in terms of How we generated revenue and margins enabled me to bring that skill set here on the south side of Chicago and ensure that we have margins to meet our mission. Because a a nun once told me, wise nun once told me, there is no margin, there's no mission. And so I use that mentality to help give to our mission to provide the programs that we need to take care of our community.
2: I love that. And, you know, I can't, I can't agree more having worked in some nonprofit situations in my career as well. We've run into organizations who were all about ministry and we love their heart. And we love that that's where their passion was. But without the money, there is no ministry. And the more money you can get, the more ministry you could do. So, you know, there is a means to an end there that you have to be mindful of when you are purpose driven, you know, but that monetary side of it and the ability to raise funds or generate funds is is critical because
3: without them, you, you just can't sustain the mission. Great, Great. You have to focus on the why. You hit it. Purpose driven. As long as you center yourself on the why. And that's something that my team and I talk about often. That's one of the things that I love about our organization at Advocate Aurora Health is there's never a day where we're we're not centered on the why at the highest levels of our organization. And that makes my job a lot easier and makes the vision a lot more palpable as well.
2: That's great. So I know there was a lot of things we wanted to talk about today. And I said to you, we'll get off it I'll start a little slow. And the next thing you know, the time will go away and we'll be like, wait, we got more to talk about. <laughs> so let's di- let's dive in a little bit and start to talk about, you know, obviously staying with our team, Heroes of healthcare. We mm-hmm. always want to continue to highlight those people who are selfless and putting themselves forward first. And I know you, you said you've got lots of stories and lots of people who fall into that category. And, you know, one of the formats we continue to follow here a little bit since we're just in the middle of a pandemic. So why not? (laughs) No rules. Let's keep going. But we're in the middle of a pandemic. So let's start backwards and let's talk about crazy to believe a year ago. Right. March of 2020. We're rolling into a new chapter for everybody as we enter 2020 and life throws us a curveball. But so tell us a little bit about what it was like at Advocate in an urban center for you guys when this thing started to break out and nobody had answers.
3: Man, I mean, you mentioned curveball. That resonated with me. You know, my son does 10U travel baseball and it was more like a Randy Johnson curveball. You remember Randy Johnson? (laughs) (laughs) He's fell on the table. Exactly right. You know, huge curveball. Vividly remember it. Vividly remember it. I remember being in the boardroom, just just behind me here, with my executive team and my physicians, and I remember the looks on their faces as it was real and it, and it hit us like a, a like a ton of bricks. And we began to see COVID patients pile into a, into our ED, and the patients that were coming into the ED, as you mentioned, on the south side of Chicago and in, in South Chicago land these patients were acutely ill. So they would come into the ED, they were going straight into the ICU. From the ICU, they were going on a ventilator. And uh, once they were on the ventilator, they weren't coming off the ventilator.
1: Hmm.
3: You know, they were leaving in, in body yeah. bags. At, at a, it, was the, it was the first step to the last step, unfortunately, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, to your point, things were changing rapidly. And even information that we were getting from the government was vacillating. It, you would have a, a meeting in your emergency incident command and sort of lay out the plays. I know you're a sports guy, we'll lay out the plays. And then by the time noon rolls around, you have to audible again because they've changed. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember focusing on just as a leader ensuring that the mental state of my team is there the mental state of my physicians is there ensuring that there is calm in the middle of chaos our president and ceo here at Jim Scogsbury had a, a great a great line that we use daily is it's faith over fear calm over chaos and i, I just in my head you know just over and over and over, reciting that and ensuring that they see me confident. They see me leaning in with them, willing to to walk the walk to do whatever it is I needed to do. And then ensuring that they knew regardless of what I was going to give my all and my team, we were going to give our all, my executive team, to ensure they had the resources necessary to do things, even if it means that we had to go against the grain somewhat. So those are things that, that really I mean, it resonates with me every day. Yeah. Every day. So talk to
2: us a little bit, share with some of them. You gave me some of the numbers in terms of what you guys were seeing, but it was amazing to me when you said that you had 95% COVID related. So you guys weren't doing anything, almost not doing anything but COVID. And what were some of the things you were seeing from your team, the doctors, the nurses, the administrative staff, and that you were just blown away by?
3: Yeah, I think there's there's a few things to it. if I had to hone in on it, Ted honestly, it would be the sacrifice. You know, when you watch a, a group of uh ladies and gentlemen risk their lives, you know, and I and I've I've played collegiate football at the high division one at the highest level. And you know what pressure is when you're when you're there and you're on ESPN and there's ninety thousand people in it, you know what pressure I've never seen pressure like this. Mm. And never seen at this level the intensity. And what what's at stake, right? And so I think one of the the most remarkable things that I've seen and sacrifice I made, I I remember, one of our nurses, single parent household, and just her and 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 her son, and her daughter, and she sent her kids off to stay with her mother, who's out of state because she didn't you know didn't want to bring risk bringing anything home mm-hmm. to her kids. So here's someone that and, and you know as as a father as well. Your kids are, I mean, that's your your heart And, and, and you're willing to send your kids away in the middle of a pandemic, right? Because you don't necessarily know what the pandemic holds, even when you send them away for them. Sure. Because of your commitment to your team, to the community, to the South Side of Chicago, and to your passion of taking care of patients. And you're putting your life on the line, by the way, because- everything's changing and we don't necessarily know how this thing is mutating and and what's going on. We're sort of building the plane and flying it, right? It it felt like that, even though that's cliche, but it, it really did. And that was remarkable to me, especially from a single, being in a single parent household raised by my mother to see a woman, and this is Women's History Month, to see you know, want to do that was phenomenal.
2: Yeah, it is. It just continues to amaze me, right? Because like you said, you know, for all of us who have children, they are the most precious thing in our lives. And to say, I feel a calling and I have to be here, you know, I'm being called to do a mighty work, right? Is uh, I think how it goes, right? And so I'm being feeling that calling. And as we talked about earlier, the purpose it is, right? And that's those are the things that were leading people through. I loved what you said, faith over fear, calm over chaos. What was leading them through those things was that feeling a greater purpose
3: that I've got a job to do and I've got to do it. Agreed. And as a leader, you're motivated. I mean, I was inspired by that. And the other component of it too, Ted, is is through that inspiration and healthcare heroes are naturally built this way. We're in healthcare because we want to make a difference. We want to save lives. We want to change lives. We want to do things for the better of people in general. That's what gravitates us to healthcare. Oftentimes, we neglect ourselves during that. Yep. In order to give to others, we neglect ourselves. And so a big part of my leadership was, and our leadership as a system, was ensuring that my executive team and I, hey, take care of yourself make sure you take care of the team that reports to you. Let's make sure we look out for each other. If Rashad, I think you're looking a little tired or you're dragging, don't worry about it. Sleep, go home, let me take the incident command, right? Right. Those types of things, because it wasn't a sprint. It wasn't even a marathon. It was more like an Ironman. And we're still in it, right? Yeah. We're still in it. Yeah. And so uh, you have to, so we were keenly focused and continue to be keenly focused On our mental state and and just mental wellness, rather. Yeah. So let's
2: move forward a little bit now in time. And this is a part I wanted to talk about. So in the middle of phase one, we'll still call it. We're getting into the the summer Mm -hmm. and not only are we dealing with a pandemic, but obviously racial tensions in the United States start to get into a new height. Right. How did that impact your organization? How did that impact the morale, the mental aspect? You know, in one of the earlier episodes, we talked about how Mount Sinai, how some of the administration felt that the George Floyd situation was a tipping point for mental fragility, for lack of a better term, where people saying, "Okay, the pandemic is pushing me to my limit. Now this is really pushing me over the edge. You know, and obviously in such a deep racial area of the south side of Chicago, mm-hmm. how did that affect your team, your environment? What was the kind of the scene, you know, when that broke out in the middle of a pandemic?
3: Yeah. And I'll start with how it how it impacted me first and, Please. and we'll, we'll definitely get into to my team as a proud black man. I was extremely hurt and distraught by what I, I, I saw, what I witnessed and you know, I shared this, and I and I shared it on on social media, and also shared it with with my my leaders at the system level, because in full transparency, I I am who I am, and and I think as leaders, you have to be authentic in in all you do. And I couldn't, I felt the need the need to speak up in terms of what we all witnessed and the impact that it had on me personally. And I, and I share sort of the the gut wrenching conversations and stories that I had to have with my kids. So I'm a father of four. I have four beautiful kids from my two girls, two boys, my oldest daughter's 13, son's 10, youngest daughter's 4 and and my youngest son is 17 months. And and so as as you have, you know, kids and my wife and, and I are sitting there and we have to have this conversation. Now my kids are are very fortunate and blessed. I have a great job, my wife has a great job. So they're growing up a lot more privilege it's night and day compared to uh, liberty city and for them it, a sh- a huge shock, right a shocker to to have this type of conversation and to witness that on on tv and and you know we had to have conversations around what it means yes you're in you're in an, an affluent area and yes mommy's an, an education executive daddy's a healthcare executive and mommy has two masters daddy has a masters degree yes but outside of these doors or outside of these suits, you know, this is in certain areas in our country, this is what it is to be a black person in America. Mm -hmm. That's a big conversation. Yeah. One of the toughest things I've ever done. Especially when
1: they're that young
3: too. Especially when, right. And especially when you've worked your entire life to ensure, you know, that they're in great areas they are safe and you go to great schools, et cetera, and, and and you have to have that conversation. So now keep in mind, you know, and I wanted to share that with our, our team and our leaders and everyone, because I wanted them to know that under the suit isn't this Teflon guy. I mean, I'm just like you, I'm human. I have a family just like your family. And everyone was having different conversations in their respective families. And then dealing with the pandemic, and then dealing with the turmoil of past experiences or racial tension, et cetera, and, and I, I think you mentioned the Sinai story. I mean, I think it's spot on. It was like a tipping point. Like, okay, well, you have to release at some point. Something has to come. So I appreciate the way that that we handled it. Our organization with Advocate Aurora Health, we embraced it. We, of course, denounced racism and social injustice and. Empowered our team to speak up. We did forums, and where our persons of color, black, brown uh, community, uh, LGBT community, anyone that's ever felt marginalized, was were there with our Caucasian, our white colleagues, and all of our colleagues were together. And we did breakout sessions where we had conversations around race, you know, and and we were vulnerable to each other, and we could ask questions like, "Hey, you know, I may be white, and I don't understand this." Tell me how you feel, Rashad. Those types of things. Yeah. And I think that helped us heal a lot, to be honest with you. You know, to sit down with your, I mean, we're a family, right? And to sit down with your family members and your brothers and sisters from different walks of life and to have those conversations, we needed that in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really appreciate how we handled it because it was tumultuous, and and you saw the uprising and uproar that was going on, uh, and all the pain and anguish that was there, and, and 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 protesting that I you know I don't agree with violence, but I definitely agree with peaceful protests, uh, you know, and and you saw all of that, and we needed, and I I actually took my kids, and we were a part of of some peaceful protests as well, just so they can experience that, and that of which. You know, my grandmother, who's still living and, and our ancestors, their descendants have fought so hard for to get us to this point. Yeah, I
2: love that. So if you can, let's just go a little bit deeper with that. And in a sense that, you know, what were those conversations like? In other words, when you were bringing the team together and you had all walks of it in there, I said to you before the call, I'm a privileged white man, so I don't mm-hmm. pretend to understand so I seek to understand. So I make no assumptions, but I'm always curious. I know at times I feel hesitant to ask questions because I don't want to offend.
1: Yeah, correct.
2: <laughs> but the only way to learn or to grow is to, is to ask the questions. And as long as you know the person's heart then you can take where it's coming from. But how did you guys foster those conversations? Because they can be awkward. They can be difficult. They can be hard to say, you know, Rashad, as a black man, why are you angry about this, right? Or, you know, what what really annoys you about this? Or excuse the expression, what pisses you off about this whole right. situation, right? <laughs> Yeah,
3: no, I so definitely content experts being there, right? And we lean heavily on our, diversity and equity and inclusion team, our DE&I team. We lean heavily on them. And it started with the top two, with our chief diversity equity officer, Erica Joy Daniels, interviewing our president and, and CEO, mm-hmm. Jim Stogsberg. And I and I never forget their exchange because it helped set the tone up. And he was vulnerable. And, you know, Jim mentioned, hey, I can't, similar to you, Ted, I'm a white guy. And he grew up a lot more humble, though, in, in, in Iowa. So, Little different than being privileged, but he does understand that he doesn't uh, walk in the persons of color's shoes. And he was like, "I was always raised not to see color." And she politely told him, "Hey, as an African American, a black woman, I want you to to see color. I want you to embrace who I am because I'm proud. We're proud of that, which is true. So it's it's being able to be vulnerable and to have those conversations. And it was a learning moment, right, for him how." It may be well intentioned, but then how it's perceived on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I just think those types of forms, and we continue to have them. But there, are, I mean, there were uh, personal stories that I share in terms of uh, being in Liberty City and, and Carroll City, Miami, and as a teenager being pulled over by the cops and, and and profiled, and we were just normal teenage kids coming home from football game, and a buddy of mine reached the unbuckle. His seatbelt and, and the guns were cocked and loaded and, and pointed, hmm. you know, vividly, you know, stories. We share those stories. Several of my colleagues that have, have lived in affluent areas share stories of of them being profiled while you know, jogging or walking in their neighborhood. And and these things are real And and these things happen. And so it was authentic. And, mm-hmm. and and it needed, you know, it's on both sides of it. It's therapy on both sides. It's definitely needed.
2: Yeah, no, I we can't hide from it. We got to continue to discuss it. And as we on the show, we talk about is the mental health aspect of all of it is so important. You know, right. as you said, being mindful to keep an eye on those people who were sacrificing so much physically to be there and working long shifts and all of that, but also mentally, how are you doing? And, you know, you got to keep that part. Correct. As healthy as the physical part of it. Otherwise, you can't do anything. Then you then you're of no
3: value. Exactly right. Exactly right. You have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And I mean, we did things like respite rooms and, and we still have them now set up in our live well app. Another shameless plug it allows you to go in there and do meditation and you can do it to run in water. And I use it. I literally use it every day, whether it's a minute, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. I go on there and do that. And we have those things set up and we encourage. The other part is encouraging our team members, our physicians to take time, take time off. And when you're off, like, like take off. We're going to have a buddy right. system. Unplug. That's right. Unplug. We'll have your back. And that's hard to do. That's again, it's hard and it's hard for me, yeah. but we had to master that because that, again, it's an Ironman. It's more than a marathon. Yeah. So
2: let's, while we're just talking about this, can you share a little bit what came out of some of those conversations? Obviously, I don't want you to share anything that somebody you know, might've said or, you know, specifically, but what was the feeling from the community? Obviously, in terms of and I don't mean so much. We, we talked a little bit about the George Floyd situation and the frustration from the black community of feeling like, when is this going to be over? When can this stop? Why does this keep happening? But how did it manifest itself into the hospital in form with the pandemic and with COVID coming in? You know, I've heard things in the news. And again, you know, I, I don't I'm not taking any of it for for a fact. But there does seem to be frustration amongst the community, A disproportionate of African Americans are dying from COVID, yet we're not recognizing that. And what are some of the feelings that you're, you were hearing then? And how does that, has that changed at all now?
3: Yeah, uh, for us, you know, let, let's keep in mind that COVID, we've been, this is a conversation we've been talking about for quite some time in terms of like health disparities and inequities and and, and just lack of access, et cetera, and and structural systemic racism and things that that have been, is history. These are factual things, right? And and it's something that we've had conversations around. And in particular, when you look at the South Side of Chicago, we have the largest life expectancy gap in the country. NYU did a, a study a few years ago, whereas you take the South Side of Chicago area code, you know, your life expectancy. Let's do this. If you go 10 miles north, your life expectancy is ninety years old. If you're in the south side of Chicago and the in the zip code, it's 59. Whew. Think about that.
2: Yes, that's not a that's not a that's
3: not a few years. That's not a few 10 miles, right? Wow. So when you take on the pandemic and COVID, this unconscionable disease that wreak havoc across the world. And you place that on places like the South Side of Chicago, where historically has been a lack of access, lack of investments in education or infrastructure, food deserts. I mean, you you name it. Lack of, of jobs, right, and, and good paid employment. Because, as you know, employment leads to better housing opportunities, leads to food, leads to better health care, leads to better education. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are intertwined. They're They're not mutually exclusive, all right. So COVID shed light on what we've known all the while. It not only shed light, it was a spotlight. Like this creates the disproportionate death rates that we're seeing in persons of colors and, and minorities, you know, black and brown people, blacks, Hispanics, you know, this creates that over the years.
2: If I understand you, it kind of, it gave a living example. So oh, yeah. we've been talking about it. We've been saying we're marginalized. Oh, yeah. We're saying these communities have food deserts and they have less resources and they can't get to all the resources that other people do. And whether you believe it or not, you hear about it. But COVID, to your point, shot a light on it and said, Okay, here's an example we're living in of exactly what we were talking a spotlight. about. Spotlight.
3: The brightest spotlight. Because think about it. The entire world is impacted mm-hmm. by this. So you can't and as a matter of fact, not only is the world impacted, the entire world is now shut down and quarantined, right? And all your focus is on how do we get out of this? right? And all you see is the disproportionate numbers. I mean, and I shared this with you a, a, a little earlier, you know, in my hospital, at one point, the darkest moment that I've ever experienced in my career, and in fact, in my life, for that matter, was sitting in this in this boardroom behind me. With my executive team, and realizing that as the report was coming out from one of my my VPs for mission and spiritual care that our more was at capacity and the funeral homes could not accept any more, and we needed to order refrigerated eighteen wheeler trucks to hold the bodies yeah. that we have to put right outside the hospital as our team members are exiting and entering. I mean, and these were people who looked like me mm-hmm. uh, weren't so. The data and the mortality, the numbers that are seen, those aren't numbers to us.
2: No, they weren't the
3: numbers you were living, you were carrying the bodies into these situations. Correct. In in terms of this, it wasn't, it's not a data point for us. No. This is, this was our reality. Right. This is what we're living. And and I think that's why we're so passionate around, and I know you'll probably, we're going to get there, but the vaccine and, and what it means for communities of color and what it means for all of us rallying to take it because we need it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We need it. Sure. So so let's fast forward a little bit and we can spend a little bit of time and let's talk about second wave. Was there anything, you know, the second surge, was there anything post Thanksgiving that lessons learned, what was better, how did you see what what things did you see out of that? And then let's we'll transition right into the vaccine cuz that's becoming now another marginalized conversation. That's becoming another political conversation. And I've got some questions that I'd love to throw at you when we get there, but let's talk about second wave
3: yeah second wave was so let me say this when you when you go through that storm, we were a lot more prepared second wave. We had lessons learned, I had lessons learned things that I could have done better, we talked about me being an operator by trade and, and the c o o and this was the first president role and and you asked specifically on external communication. well, I locked in, and I was worried about making sure the shop was running and I didn't communicate as much as I should have externally. And I shared that with everybody. Cause I think as a leader, you got to know that you're not perfect. You got to be willing to tell people you make mistakes and football helped create that. Cause in football, everything is on the camera. So you can't even, You can't lie if you want to. The eye in the sky doesn't lie. And then they'll show it to you six more times. (laughs) Right. In front. front (laughs) That's right. In front of your teenage friends who can't wait to crack jokes on you. Right. Right, (laughs) right. Now you're on the jumbotron. Then you go. (laughs) Then you're on. Right.
2: You're on the bad part of the ESPN highlights. That's right.
3: There you go. So I'm accustomed to that. So I knew learning. Okay, I need to spend more time. Communicating with my board of directors, more time with the legislators, more time with the pastors of the churches, more time with the teachers of the school. Like everyone that's externally has to get a lot more communication from me because they're Mm -hmm. looking at me as the face. Yeah. So that's that. So that's one. The other thing is we've made some moves at advocate, whereas we were outsourcing PPE to China. And when China shut down, that adversely impacted us. Luckily, size does matter. And, and, you know, we're, 28 hospital system in in two states. So we could lean on Wisconsin for certain things and lean on other areas of Illinois that that may not have been as impacted as we were on Mm -hmm. the Side of Chicago. So that that helped. But what we did was we invested in a PPE company homegrown here in the US out of Texas. And then now we had stock of PPE, right? Because we didn't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. So all those things help, right? And then, and and plus, you know, you couple that with the fact that Things weren't changing through the CDC and the FDA. Everyone was on the same track. But I think the big part about wave two that was our concern and what we were prepared for is this flu, the flu season, as you know. So flu season comes around every year, and that's a busy time for for any any hospital across the country. And when you think about pneumonia and and CF or you think about some of those other things, it's a big deal. So, we were, our uh, epidemiologists were categorizing this as a twinemic, right? So, you got, you know, and, and some people will call it a tridemic if you add the social injustice plus pandemic plus the flu season coming. So, it was a, a huge push for us to ensure that everyone received their flu vaccines, which we is mandatory here. But we took it a step further and we went out and, and provided flu vaccines for the community as well, because as our mission is to help people live well, and we knew that we needed to get out in front of this as, as much as possible, as quick as possible. So all of our physicians, all of we did a lot more outreach from flu vaccine than just our employees, all of our patients, all everyone, out, even out in the community. So let's
2: take a minute and talk about that, because that brings up a point and question, and I'm curious to see what you saw. So I remember rolling into the fall and everybody saying you know, now we're really going to get hit because we're going to have flu on top of COVID. Correct. And I heard stories saying flu won't be so bad because we're wearing masks and we never used to wear masks before. So now we're not going to spread it as much. And then most recently, somebody had shared that some of the data coming out of CDC around mortalities doesn't seem to be making sense. In other words, like there are almost no reports of flu Deaths coming out of some of the data and and I, and I don't want to say right. c d c because I could be wrong, but what did you guys see? Did you see a diminished amount of flu? Did you see higher rates? Is flu and covid getting are those lines
3: getting blurred and overlapping so that's a great question, and to be honest with you, I'm not the expert in that, but I work with the experts you know <laughs> around around this but from our <laughs> from our end, we were prepared to see a much greater Spike. Now we're not. Well, we're just coming through flu season now. I forgot. It's the year is flying. It's already almost spring. You know. Yeah. It's yeah. Here yeah. Here yeah. we are. So we didn't see as as a robust flu season as we were prepared for. And on the same token, if if we're really looking at it from us, from our perspective, and it could be because we got hit really hard through the gate on the south side of Chicago, we were probably one of the first. In the country to be slammed like we were slammed we didn't see the COVID mm-hmm. number spike as high as they did during the first wave so those were all right uh, and i and i continue to hold my breath on this because you never count your eggs before they hatch you know right <laughs> you count your chickens before they hatch but right. those were all positive signs for us coming through it so we you know yeah. i don't know now i can't tell you Yes, this is caused because of this, and this. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that like I know the answer to that. But
2: it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see how the data comes out and how it flushes out. Because again, conspiracy theorists sit there and say, "Well, the government's counting everything as COVID now. Every death is COVID death, even if it's not, or if it's COVID related death, and they're counting flu as COVID." So it will be interesting to see how those numbers shake out. So let's talk about with the time we have left here. Let's talk a little bit about the vaccination. What are you seeing in Southside? What's going? And, you know, the the thing that I'm hearing as, again, as everything gets politicized is concern that the marginalized communities are going to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And that's not as good as the vaccine. So they're not going to give us, you know, they're going to give the not so good vaccine. And, you know, you just I just roll my eyes when I hear that stuff, because it's frustrating that all the data and the facts aren't always out, but without me putting any more words in your mouth, why don't you share with us and the listeners kind of what are what are you guys experiencing good and, and bad?
3: Yeah. So the good part is uh, let me say we have the vaccine here and it is rolling. We have Moderna, we have Pfizer, uh, and then, and then we will be getting Johnson and Johnson soon. And so being in a marginalized area, we're, you know, we ha- we have it. We have it. The bad part, is, so I've I've taken the shot as well, right? And I didn't plan on taking it right away. My primary care doc and I released a, another podcast around our, my experience and that. That's a whole other segment, but he really convinced me to to take the vaccine. So you know, so let's let's talk about that, right? So if you have hesitance, that's there at the president level. Imagine the hesitance that you have that is. At other levels of the organization, down to the front line, who may not trust or sure. maybe I don't have a lot of information, et cetera. So, what we're seeing on the South side is we're making a huge push to one embrace sort of the systemic challenges and racism that has been in medicine from the Tuskegee experiment to a, a number of other things. I mean, we can go down the line. You know, I shared a a story with everyone. And I, and my son's baseball team, one of the parents, great, great friend of mine, white guy. We are a very close friends. And we were having a conversation. He's like, well, Rashad, you're president of a hospital and two hospitals. And why don't you, you guys just make, make it mandatory for everybody to get the flu vaccine. And I told him, well, it's because some people don't trust the vaccine. They don't trust the government. They don't trust the history. And like my people, like black people would, it would not be good mm-hmm. for Uh, right? And he was like, well, why? I was like, well, for one, there's a Tuskegee experiment. And the first thing he said was Rashad, that was so long ago. Yeah. But then, you know, I had to explain to him, my grandmother is still living. Right. And it's not long ago to her because the things that she's experienced in, in our country and from being the help and from picking cotton and from being sick, these are real things that when we are, at, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And and she's telling story. I mean, these are real real life experiences. And he, he was appalled and he apologized. And I was like, it's fine. You don't have to apologize. That's what diversity is all about. That's why we have to have diversity in the boardroom and people from different walks of life, because we won't make that mistake. Right. So to that end, where I was going with that is, is we are about addressing, you know, what's been out there, what's happened in the past. Okay. This has happened this is how we address it. But as leaders of color, this is our story. This is why I'm taking the shot. This is why you should take the shot. This is why our physicians are taking the shot. And so I stepped up because there was a hesitance really to to, to get on board. And to the point that you made earlier, which was being disproportionately impacted by COVID and having chronic illnesses run rampant throughout our community with COPD and CHF and diabetes and hypertension. Yeah. we can ill afford not to take the shot right so that's that's really what we've been focused on with our organization and then and not only our organization but our partners throughout the south side other other healthcare assets that we have has all been focused on getting that going
2: Mm -hmm. So if people in your community want to get the vaccine, they can get it right at your facility and their scheduling. And how are you handling that capacity? Right. That's a whole new other logistical issue. Right. Because you're not set up to have thousands of people come through the doors for even even if it's for a half an hour or an hour. it takes on a whole other logistical thing. Plus refrigeration again. Correct.
3: So size and scale does help being a part of a, a system. And so we have assets that we can do a hub and spoke. I have some really bang up CNOs, chief nursing officers, and and Sharon Otten and and Gwen Oglesby odom at Trinity, and and these these young ladies are they run they run the shop like they they source the the team members and they're doing the logistics and doing all the meeting and it, and so that that helps. And then the other component of it is. Keep in mind the vaccine distribution, and it varies from state to state, but we have vaccine for Trinity that comes from the city of Chicago. And then we have vaccine for South Sub that comes from Cook County. And so in terms of the allotment that you receive, it's based off of not only the demand, but ensuring that we don't leave any dose behind, right? And, And that we have a program for a senior 65 and older that are within that tier can't come in then who are we calling to ensure that we don't waste this dose, right? Because to your point, there's a, a, time, a time frame that's there. So lots of logistics, lots of communication, oftentimes several times a day, and just teamwork. That's, and that's, that's how you make it happen. And, and just no two days are alike. And you have to be flexible and, and know that in life, you know, three things are, are guaranteed, you know, death, taxes, and change. <laughs> <That's Yeah. it.
2: laughs> oh, gosh. So, so much to talk about. And I know we're kind of running a little light, tight on time and I appreciate all the time you're given us, especially in the middle of everything that's going on. So thank you. Absolutely. We will continue to to talk, you and I. We'll circle back. I'd love to talk to you again, maybe in the fall and see how things are going and check in and and Absolutely. keep this conversation going. But before we head out, I always have my standard, you know, departing question, which is, so, growing up, current, past, or or present, who was your hero? Who's the hero for Rashad Johnson?
3: That's a, undoubtedly that's my mother. That's my mother, undoubtedly. And as a man now, and a father of four, uh, and a, and a husband, you know, I don't know how she how she did it in a single parent household, and and uh, my mother's a teacher, and and that's less than a fifteenth of what my wife and I are fortunate to to bring in. And so for her to, to raise two boys in that type of a, of an environment and then to go and get her master's degree, I, I literally watched my mother in the 80s in Miami get her master's degree. I was back then you could leave kids in the car. So was, <laughs> my brother and I was in the car and she went to Barry University in Miami to get a master's and I watched her improve our life, our lifestyle. Yeah. And that showed me the power of education and and she used to always say education is the key, but seeing is is believing and what I can see is closer to, closer to achieve. And so for her to do that, it it is is driven me. And she's just taught me so many life lessons. I mean it even going through this pandemic, I can remember, you know, ordering ventilators and they were saying, well, you know, we don't necessarily need all of these ventilators. And and I and I and I the story with, with my mother told me. It's, it's better to have and not need than to need and not have. Yeah. And so many different stories I could share, but she is undoubtedly uh, my hero. I thank God that she's still around and I spoil every chance, every chance I get. And I'm grateful to have a wife who appreciates that, that relationship as well. And they get along great. So, And what's her name? Benny, Benny D. Johnson is, is my mom and my wife is Donidra Johnson. Those are my, my queens, so uh, they keep, they keep me.
2: Uh, that's right, it's good to have some strong women around that's you, right? They keep me focused. You got some good guardrails there, that's right.
3: It, happy Women's History Month, too. You know, that's, uh, that's awesome, that's awesome. That's great. Well,
2: it was my privilege to have you on. Thank you for allowing me to be direct and ask questions and, and seek to understand. I think we need to continue to do that as a society. I, I heard an article recently and they said, we've lost the art of civil discourse, right? So we wow. can't talk, we can't have different opinions and have a conversation about it anymore. It, it, it's, we, we can have a conversation and it immediately gets heated or it gets personal. So let's hope that this conversation leads to some more civil discourse where we feel comfortable asking those questions of each other Absolutely. and being okay with that. That maybe whether we agree or don't disagree with that answer, we can respect each other for having an answer.
3: Agreed. I agree. I can't can't thank you enough, Ted, for this opportunity. A powerful conversation, powerful podcast, and for the work that you're doing to further the mission of uplifting our heroes on the the front line. God bless you. I appreciate you. And call me at any time, my friend. I enjoyed it.
2: Thank you, sir. My privilege. I appreciate it.
0: Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player.